Well, hi everybody. It's Toby Miller. This is the Cultural Studies Podcast. Don't stop eating, Tom. Mm-hmm. And I'm here on the campus of Lingnan University in Hong Kong with mm-hmm. a very old friend of mine. I mean, someone who's been a friend of mine for a very long time. In fact, we were just reminiscing it's 25 years more. Yeah. 1986 we met. Mm-hmm. Tom O'Regan. Um, Tom, it's great to see you. And how are you? And what's going on? Well, Tobes, you, you asked me to... Um say what I'm doing at the moment. It's kind of an interesting question because um, because if, if I think about kind of cultural studies and where it's going and whatever mm-hmm. contribution I've made to it, I, I, I think it's, it, it's partly had to do with the kind of work that I, that I did for about 20 odd years in helping other people do cultural studies work, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a kind of a, um, in an educational setting whether PhD students or um, such as yourself or um, or just people who were just generations of education and educating of students and so on and, it, and it's really to get to where I'm where I am at the moment it, it's kind of the last book that I wrote that was really came out of my educational practice was Australian National Center which is 1996. Yeah, and, it, and I'm kind of at, at a certain point, I, I moved into various forms of administration, which uh, um, first as the uh, second director for the Australian Key Centre for Cultural Media Policy, and then that gave rise to a series of research enterprises and that, that mm-hmm. were were basically not connected with any curriculum I might teach. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you might have said, but uh, yeah. you already sent a message, uh, I guess, to me with me. Oh, <laughs> 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 right, up a seat, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, so, so I, I, I kind of, um, you know, that, that, that phase is, uh, is, has been less, since then, has, has been really... Uh, great deal less connected with what I might be teaching mm-hmm. and has been uh, generated by interests that have been created through through other means and I, and I think that's the kind of an important division I'm still still kept having PhD students and they kept doing very interesting things but but it it it, it does mean that what I've done has changed somewhat and 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 it's and it's no longer organised sure. in the kind of way that it once was. Now, in terms of folks who are listening to this podcast, Tom, uh, they're generally in 50 different countries. Yes. And But about 50% of them live in the United States. Mm. So half of them are in the 50 other countries. Yeah. And the distribution varies depending on all kinds of factors. Mm. But for those people who might not be familiar with your work, maybe you could tell us about those two first books you did, uh, I'm thinking of Australian mm-hmm. television culture and Australian national cinema. No, you're, yeah. you're welcome to join us, by all means. No, 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 I just, uh, you're recording. Don't, don't worry, no, it's no. fine. It's all grist to the mill. Yeah. Australian well, television culture and Australian national mm-hmm. cinema, which really were the first major monograph, single-authored studies mm-hmm. in, in that period of those two institutions. Yeah, I mean, both of them came out of a... Uh, well, one of them, the, 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 the Australian National Cinema, came out of my PhD, but, it, but you know, when you, when you finish your PhD and you don't get it immediately published and other books come out instead, you, you have to reformulate a project, and that's one of the things I did. But it, that particular book came very precisely out of, um, out of a course in Australian cinema that I was doing. And it also came out of a particular conjunction of, of really, I guess, which is, you might say, is, is, is my contribution to, to cultural studies and cinema studies, which is, which is a kind of way of combining the two um, into... And, and I, I didn't think I did it deliberately, but it was like, how do you, you recognise the multifaceted aspects of the cinema? And how do you recognise that in a national cinema? And the whole idea behind Australian National Cinema was to retell the story of national cinemas through Australian cinema and to say, if we want to advance this concept and think about this concept in any kind of sustained fashion, then it's only through a detailed case study will we get to this. And I also had the, um, had the idea that this would give people a, a different sense and a different kind of dialogue about Australian cinema and what its interests might consist. And that's where I started with that book. So it's about 10 years between your PhD and that book. 
and it's now 15 years since. Um, many people around the world have an interest in Australian cinema, active or mm -hmm. minor, as the case may be. What do you see as some of the main tendencies in terms of both the different policy formations mm. and the generic trends? Well, I mean, one of the reasons that, and, and that early, in the uh, 1980s and 1990s, that I ended up writing a book on Australian television and then a book on Australian cinema, was, was that the two things were, were in some ways in different kind of compartments. Mm -hmm. um, when a, we're here at a, uh, and a, in a, in a conference on uh, educating the filmmaker, one of the, one of the reasons for the establishment of the Australian Film, Television and Radio School was to produce something quite different than the existing things that were on offer on television. So it was part of a kind of a, a notion that you would set up de novo a feature film production industry. Um, and that's one of the areas, one of the reasons that my interest in cultural policy emerged out of, out of that and out of the ways in which you could have um, uh, in the in the development of the Australian television, you, you had certain kind of advocacy emerging around that, uh, around that develop, around having more opportunities for diverse kinds of television production happening right. in there. Right. But but where that could be realised ended up in feature films, <laughs> and in a whole kind of apparatus, effectively initially for the subsidisation of feature films, and and for various kinds of experimental filmmaking as well. So th those things. <coughs> Those things structured the film, a, a divide in the film industry yeah. between the two, which was quite alive in the 1970s. It started to kind of be reformulated in the 1980s with the miniseries boom, with major directors such as uh, such as uh, um, George Miller and Phil Noyce, before they both went Hollywood in various ways, um, working in miniseries productions and so on. As you as you well know, since you've written on that, Toby. Um, but the, so by the time we get to the 1990s, there's there's a there's a degree of porousness happening there, and at the same time, one of the other developments that's very important in this story is is the internationalisation story, or rather, a different kind of internationalisation story. I mean, the first head of the uh, of the Australian Film, Television, Radio School was the guy who set up one of the most famous film schools in Europe, which is Jerzy Turplitz, who set up the film school at Łódź in Poland, where Polanski was Elma Mater, among other very prominent filmmakers. And, and so that, that, in a sense, reflected some of those ambitions held for the feature film-making space. But by the time you're getting the internationalisation that starts to come in in the late 1980s and accelerates over the 1990s is, happens in two different distinct domains. One is the domain of the kind of the international... Uh, born international productions, which are which are made in that location, which you've written about and called offshore production or runaway production, and, and, and I prefer to call international production because of its diverse sources of funding and so on. But we could have an argument about that some other time. Um, and, and in many ways, um, I should say that that turn was partly generated by some of your own work, um, Toby, and on the, the Gold Coast. You're the first person to write about the Gold Coast. I should production. say, by the way, for those who don't know, Tom was my sometimes called supervisor, sometimes advisor of my dissertation. And I would never have completed a PhD were it not for him. So it's very nice of you to say that some of that work influenced you. Well, but, but, but it, was hap it became un unavoidable that you had this international production industry component that was happening in Australia. This was the 1990s, the era of the low Australian dollar, which was about half, 50 cents American at one stage. Yeah. Um, uh, Australia as, as an economy is, is, is highly exposed to Asia and, uh, and when the Asian financial crisis hit in the 1990s uh, that's when the Australian dollar collapsed um, but paradoxically um, it didn't lead to the kind of um, major dislocations um, that it that the current financial crisis, it did in some Asian countries, but didn't in Australia, even though the dollar collapsed. Um, so, so, so you, you had this presence of international production, and the, the and and you then had this weird phenomenon of um, of Hollywood standard film studios being being created or recreated or rebuilt or refashioned 
around the world, and one of them was the first of these in Australia, was at this place which had no real previous history of film and television production, which was the Gold Coast, which was a holiday resort. Which is a southeastern Queensland, and as you would expect from its various names, Gold Coast or Surface Paradise, one of the parts of it, mm. uh, is, as Tom says, very much a kind of commodified, low middle class, but with big money in it too, holiday spot, and has been for mm. decades. Yeah, I mean, for, for Americans, think of Orlando and Miami. And that's yeah. two of the places it's modelled itself on right. in various ways. And the, the hinterland of this is where these studios were set up, and there's also a theme park that you can Associated go with it. To. Which okay. is, again, has, uh, has echoes in Orlando as well. Well, right. The, and then another one started in Sydney, right? Yes, yeah, so another one started in Sydney. But the, the, one of the really interesting things about the Gold Coast was that it initially started by Dino De Laurentiis. Right. And it was the third film studio he created. He created one in Italy in the 1960s, uh, Little Chine Chitta, Little Chine, or whatever it was called. Um, he then created the uh, Screen Gem studio in um, Wilmington um, and kick-started that whole North Carolina participation in film and television production. And uh, then it was the Gold Coast, and he went broke on the Gold Coast. This um, was the 1987 stock market crash. Mm. that took out a lot of people all over yeah. the world yeah. and certainly him for a while and there was some public money in that initially wasn't there but then in the, the whole scale, the nature mm. of the investment and the public and private yeah. participation changed after his exit yeah, the, um, his, his Australian business partner who had been uh, head of uh, the, the then major exhibition chain um, in Australia, and who'd, and who'd been the sales agent for Crocodile Dundee in its in its uh, move to become the most successful uh, film in its year of release internationally, uh, which it was. And this, got, but it was sold territory by territory by this guy. Um, he he brought in Village Roadshow, uh, which is an Australian-based company, media company with aspirations. And together they tried to shape a, a new agenda of screen mm. production in Australia. So, so that developed. Um, the Fox Studios came online by the mid-1990s, partly in response to this, partly uh, based on a kind of a, of a new internationalisation agenda of the then Labor Prime Minister, uh, Paul Keating, who wanted some major development as part of his national cultural policy statement, Creative Nation. Um, and it was also a means of, uh, of embedding down and taking advantage, or seeming to take advantage, of, of the fact that, uh, that uh, News Corporation, at the time when Rupert Murdoch was accepting American citizenship, wanted to affirm, Rupert Murdoch wanted, it seems, to affirm his Australianness and his Australian influence. So, embedding News Corporation, Fox, into the Australian uh, situation was important there. Later, film studios were created in, uh, in Melbourne in the early 2000s. And, uh, and then, most recently, a, a very good studio complex has been developed in Adelaide. So, but, but, that was, but what became of interest to myself and Ben Goldsmith, my collaborator here, was, well, well why was this happening? And, and how could we conceive of this sudden turn to film production spaces? And, and because we'd both come out of a kind of a cultural policy centre, and we started this when we were in a cultural policy centre, we, we kind of said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, if not public money in some cases, there's, there's a lot of relaxations, <laughs> a lot of incentives, a lot of, say, low interest loans. A lot of Well, well <laughs> no, I don't want to say, understanding suggests that it's kind of, um, you know, at the edge of legality. I don't think this stuff was at the edge of legality. This stuff was, was often a kind of a, you know, the... It was an extension of the public-private partnerships that you started transforming around the place. So, so we had to, we, we moved from a, a situation where in Australian cinema, the, you know, you think about film policy and film policy is quite central to, you know, what's funded, what are the rules are, you know, if the rules for the current producer offset for a, for a drama series knock off at a certain number of episodes, then that, that, then that series gets cancelled even though it might have been very popular because it, it's the offset is what makes it viable. So, but, but, in, but in this zone of the international production, yeah. the, the, uh, you know, the, the, we had to re-educate ourselves about what policy was doing and what kind of policy was being enacted. 
And it seemed to us that sometimes it was sometimes it was the regional development authority when we went internationally and did our study of the film studio. We uh, <coughs> we, we 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 noted it, it took different forms this investment, whether it was European Union structural adjustment funding, whether it was, you know, an attempt to kind of kickstart something happening in Babelsberg in in the, in the Berlin kind of context after the. Uh, um, normalisation after after the wall had come down, the the renovation of existing national film studios, and this was that moment when when uh, there was a certain ascendancy, I suppose you could call it, in in Hollywood screen production that seemed unstoppable, and so participating in that had become a kind of an important thing, and that's one of the reasons your um, your two books on global Hollywood kind of captured a certain amount of that. And, and one of the things that we, because we'd come from this angle, we were looking at it from the, the view of the places. And what was it that they were doing in their own kind of um, policy making, in inverted commas, that was characteristic of this new form? And, and what, what kind of way were they participating? What were the limits of that participation? How was it being structured? To what extent was it tied up with accessing monies of various kinds, whether it be tax relief monies in terms of uh, payroll tax or various other kinds of things like that, or whether it would be kind of notions of film friendliness about how you might structure your environment to permit this to happen and uh, filmmaking to happen. So we, we, we basically kind of then had, that led to us having to explain the participation of places through the spaces of production. So, mm. so in, in effect that the film studio book was the general kind of description about how this is happening internationally, how this was like this little component of globalisation. Mm. Now, now many different forms that globalisation takes, and that's just one of the forms it took in the Australian case, and we then did a later study of, the, of, of a particular place, which was the Gold Coast, in terms of this kind of set of arrangements, this whole idea of a local Hollywood. But what was happening in the mainstream industry of the local production industry was also forms of internationalisation. Mid-1990s, the largest television production house, Grundy's, is bought by Pearson's. It's then subsequently bought by a series of, re-bought and repositioned by a series of, of companies. Now by the way, if I can interrupt for a second there, Tom, for people who've not heard of Grundy's, a very successful Australian television production house over decades, it started out uh, as Doing a quiz game show, show quiz show mm. format purchase and remanufacture place, and ended up franchising these things all over the world, as well as as well as franchising successful. television drama series uh, and and television drama indeed. So it's interesting in that in some senses it's the locus classicus of what becomes the franchised reality television model of the early part of the 21st century, mm. now fortunately dying, but was resilient for a long time. They're with us for a while. It's a slow death. So, yeah, so, so, you know, the, the, there are not many uh, of the larger production companies producing, say, television drama or feature film in Australia that, you know, who, who are, who, who ex, whose life extends beyond the project, so to speak, the mm. company is not just formed for the project but has, a, has an ongoing existence. That's not associated with the multinational company. Now. There's, there's very few of them that are that are that are still independent in that kind of way. Mm. And so, so that that suggests that there's the other dimension of the globalisation is within what we used to think of as the sovereign national space. And so, so you know, for the purposes of of um, of claiming the producer offset or various kinds or even or even funds for screen business, mm. you, you you can find companies that that um, their principles are Australian, the principles of the company, of all that part of the company are Australian, but the, you know, you, you're effectively having a, a multinational companies um, you know, drawing funds or, or having their, um, Disney for example, having a 10 minute program that they do, uh, I think it's as the bell rings or when the bell rings, one of those kind of formatted things that's done in a number of national territories, which is part of its indigenisation strategy. Uh, I mean, they, they, you know, that counts as uh, for the quota of uh, children's content as Australian content, for example. So, so just that form. I'm not, I'm not sure. being critical of it in saying this. I'm just no, observing this as an empirical phenomenon. So, does that mean that there is a lag between the 
direction of national policy when it is cultural and the direction of national policy when it's commercial. I mean, I know these things can't be absolutely separated, mm. but at one level you're saying this is about internationalization. At another level you've just invoked what continue to be quite important regulations in many countries, namely essentially mm. quotas mm. to ensure that there is content with local accents, mm. stories, idioms and places, uh, and also to ensure that there are jobs for local boys and girls. Right? Yeah, so a, yeah, and, and it's these still things are sometimes work in tandem, mm. the cultural and the commercial, and sometimes they're somewhat contradictory, but they're still operating, aren't they? Yeah, they're still operating, and um, I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't got anything definitive on this, but it's just my, it's just a sense I have after um, one of the books that speaks to me on this is Saskia Assassin's later book, not. I mean, the, the, the city book obviously was very interesting to me, but the, the later book on territory rights, sovereignty, something like that, it, it actually makes an argument that uh, I think suggests, that's very suggestive in this context, saying that the, the things that globalisation is happening, not just or most importantly in the internationally internationalised international things, it's happening in the very national space itself. And in the very ways in which it's a sort of a, it's a below the, almost a below the radar one, and it's and it's in that context where you see, you know, the the, the owning of production firms by multinationals, whether it's Berlusconi or um, or Endemol or, or um, you know, very or News Corporation or various other entities, um, that's that's part of uh, a series of changes that that, you know, I can give you a reason why that's occurred. Um, in the production space is because effectively, you mentioned reality TV, when the move came to invest in things like reality-based programming, uh, partly in response to the, this perception that, uh, that uh, you know, you, you were, audiences would come to a program that was only available on that day and that time, not something that might come out on DVD later or so on, yeah. um, or, you know, de-emphasise drama. And the Australian commercial networks ceased to well not ceased to compete, competed less with drama. Now that you know that's kind of changes. That's changed back a bit with the success of you know it only takes the success of one drama series to change the <laughs> change the game. But uh, with Pack to the Rafters and, and a couple of other thing, other shows. But but there was this process in which you kind of the, the TV networks used to look after drama a bit more. But they, the, the companies then had to fend for themselves. They, there wasn't the same network interest in it when you had that more direct kind of interest in, say, the reality TV with the benefits that could do. And more importantly, the ways in which in some of those shows, MasterChef in Australia is a classic example of this, Big Brother in Australia is an example of this as well, you look to other entities that will help support significant parts of your production. Right in MasterChef, it was Coles, the the, the 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 number two or number one grocery supermarket. Yeah. Between Coles and Woolworths, they dominate the Australian market, and uh, and MasterChef was, a, you know, it was a classic kind of uh, association of Coles with the supermarket with MasterChef, and therefore the ingredients, therefore the recipes, therefore this, and and that. That kind of special deal with Coles was very important mm. to enabling the production to be the scale it was, and to, for it to have the look that it did, and for it to travel around Australia to sort of and, and shoot in different parts of Australia, uh, and so on. Just as just as the the Big Brother when it had its seasons in Australia, it's ten or eleven seasons in Australia, it was one a new one being done <laughs> as we speak, uh, or about to be done as we speak. And, and um, that that was the film. The initial film studio was created by the theme park and paid for by the theme park. You think of the cost of so setting something like that up. What is the utility anymore of using this word, the F word? F word. F word. Film. Film. <sighs> Look, I, I mean, it's really it's really interesting that um, you know, alongside this, of course, is you've. You know, we've seen the return of um, of feature film in various ways, and I mean, you, know, you, you don't have to go very far to find people talking about cinephilia, um, and for people to proclaiming themselves as cinephiles, 
where where it was a, there was a certain moment in my cultural formation where that was like a, a bad thing to be proclaiming yourself of. It was sort of you you know. Uh, whereas now I think it's kind of a way of being in the world and, and also a form of internationalisation and having an international conversation and being in that kind of uh, larger swim of things. So is it, is it apart from its commercial possibilities and its connections to more profitable mm. and popular and important mm. media, rather like opera or high art in the sense that it's a calling card that shows you're a nation of substance and moment? Yes, that, that, that's true up to a point, but, but I, I do think, though, it's... You see, one of the things that film always had over television uh, that was that it was kind of one-off rather than series. And so, you know, one of the problems with a series was that, you know, everything was given. You know, if it's a drama series, the situation was given. The storyboards were already... The story, the story arc was already set. And, uh, and, and you know, while, while sometimes police series um, gave great scope to, to do different things with that, with that format, there were still things that had to happen at certain minutes and certain narrative arc and, you know, uh, famously in one Australian series these guys getting out of the car and shutting the door. Well, shutting um, of the door very important in a series of uh, programs indistinguishable from one another and known as Hector's Protectors after <laughs> yeah, the yes. noted orchestral leader Hector Crawford whose production house made them. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so, but, you know, but with, with feature film, for example, and with other kinds of film as well, this is the opportunity to manage something yourself. Um, to to create a kind of it's a, a lower scale sometimes both simultaneously the very high scale and the simultaneously this low and mid scale. But, so, but if, if I interrupt you there again, if you go back to the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, mm. lots of newly independent countries, as well as places that have been independent from mm. colonialism mm. for a while, like Australia, wanted to have car industries because this was an emblem that you've made it, or shipbuilding mm. industries or very large government-owned telecommunications systems. These were priorities. Uh, now, that's a bad word, the mm. idea that you would stimulate these economies from the mm. get-go to make them happen mm. or have them government-owned. Conversely, it's still the case that there is an appreciation of the value in most countries of major direct public investment in film and television, specifically through mm. so-called national broadcasters mm. like the CBC mm. in Canada. Okay. Or the BBC, BBC or the ABC or in Australia. The ABC in Australia. Uh, and it's understood that this is both good for the country in some way, mm -hmm. that is not always specified, because it might be mm -hmm. embarrassing if it were, but also that, especially at the film level, it is some kind of calling card. It seems to me that's, n that's something that's more specific to the last 40 years, mm -hmm. as opposed to the previous 30 or 40 years, when it was manufacturing that made the mark of the nation. Mm. And then it became more of these sort of cultural areas. Right? And what's interesting to me is the way in which, obviously, you know, the, you, your work shows how the discourses of industry and art are always mm. operating alongside, and yeah. sometimes they're parallel, but a lot of the time they're interpenetrating, sometimes they're yeah. contradictory, sometimes they're not. But it seems to me that what's different now is that they've really merged in this uh, idea of the creative industries. The dear old creative industries. So uh, tell us a bit about that and your reaction to that phenomenon, which has been very dramatic in the last 20 years in much of Europe, mm. much of Asia in particular. Well, I, I, I think there's a couple of different ways of answering that, really. Um, one, one way of answering it is to think about it in terms of of what else is involved in film. You know, like you, you might be training, you might be training people at the Beijing Film Academy, and you know, a lot of them will get work as commercials directors, and that's not surprising really, because commercials are the highest budget per unit of screen time that that is on offer in many countries, and that was certainly the case in Australia. And some of the best of Australian directors of the of the 60s and 70s came out of commercial production. People like Fred Skepsy, for example and major figures that were arguing for the development of the film industry, like Philip Adams, ran, ran commercial production companies. Um, it was also a leftist as well, uh, but 
that's beside the point. But I think the contemporary moment of creative industries is is one in which you're you're almost seeing the extension to to various kinds of ordinary uh, commercial activity to to a, a kind of partially the subsidy mindset. So it, it's it's. It's you know some of the creative industry rhetoric talks about it in terms of uh, uh, you know as it, most famously in the Australian context John Hartley and Stuart Cunningham's argument from blue poles to fat pipes as if um, Jackson Pollock who who was the painter of blue poles and was in the Australian gallery represented something like a high cultural mandarin rather than some kind of guy on the seat of his pants creating art that uh, was. Uh, just completely out there, and uh, so on. But, but you know, and a crucial prop in the uh, recent heist movie Contraband. <laughs> oh, good, good. You know, there's some things that Jackson Pollock should be, should be continue to be. Where, where, where the heist guys and the bank guys think it's a rag, <laughs> and it turns out to be worth twenty million in the informal market. In any event, yes. So, yeah, so, 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 so I, I think we've got a. We've we've got a kind of a way in which we, which that that process was sort of hiding the idea of a kind of like what you might call in another context the governmentalisation of culture, the ways in which you're having the idea that you need to do more work in this area. In the games industry, you might kind of, as both the Victorian and Queensland governments did in Australia, you might purchase some facility that would enable high-end games to be developed. That certainly happened in both uh, Brisbane Gold Coast and, and Melbourne for a period in terms of games, and enabled some important games production companies to emerge, which, which some of which have subsequently went bankrupt. Which is not unusual, given the high risk nature of the games, or the games industry, and when you can get something goes wrong with so so much at stake, you you can be in serious trouble. So, so, so you know, it was a, it was a kind of a sense that. You know, just as you've had, you know, and again, you, you've talked about this in relation to TV and sport, J- just as you've got the kind of notion that you've, um, you know, the, the, the sporting bodies will tell you, you've got to you know, just tell this government, you've got to build a studio stadium if, so you can participate and get the advantages of people, cultural tourism for sport yeah. in your location, and there'll be so many hotel nights for this. Um, and, uh, and and so you know you, you build studio stadia, stadia that are friendly to film, to mm. television production. Well, well, that's what's happened in this. That's another way of understanding what happened in that studio space. That's another way of understanding the ways in which you know, for example, um, various uh, governments around the world, but in Australia, for example, some state governments have been involved in you know, in basically. Uh, facilitating the rebuilding of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, in other words, the public broadcaster, their regional presence. And I mean, one of the, one of the chief rationales for the develop, redevelopment of both the Adelaide Studios and also Central City Studios in Melbourne was, was the idea that this would facilitate film and television production in their location, local film production and television in their location, as well as international. So, so it was like, and, and one of the responses of some of the TV uh, networks has, has been partly to get out of their original premises, which are quite old, and to move closer to these places. And well, you know, they they, they still do a, a large proportion of their of the programs they produce is, are in house. But by in house, you're contracting in people to work in that in house environment. So, so you can have it sort of somewhere else. You can have it done somewhere else, although it's not a these aren't independent companies that are doing it, but they might be facilities providers that are providing, like Global uh, provides all of these facilities, outside broadcast bands, blah, 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 and studio spaces for sure, drama series. Sure, sure. Now, I'd love to go back to something that we've been touching on quite a bit in terms of periodicity, maybe it's our age, but uh, we mentioned what's now called the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, but we started out as the Australian Film School. Mm-hmm. And it began around the same time you went to university, and you went to a new university, I think you were in the first intake, of Griffith Griffith University University in Brisbane, Mm. which was, along with Murdoch University, where you also worked, one of the prime, or the the two prime interdisciplinary institutions of their day. So I'd love, if you wouldn't mind, for you to talk a bit about 
how you were attracted to that and how you got into cultural studies, why that was important for you. Well, I went there because it was a new university and it promised a new curriculum, whatever that was. I don't, I don't think I necessarily knew what the old or traditional <laughs> curriculum was, Toby. But things that were new must be good. You were 17. Yeah, well, yeah, that's new right. And it, well, it might be an adventure. Right. Um, and also, they, they offered, I wanted to not immediately go to university, and they offered a kind of a uh, deferred entry, which wasn't being offered so easily in the other institutions. Nowadays it's more common in Australia, isn't it? But yeah, and it wasn't I, I also, at all then. I also wanted to, I had a vague notion about wanting to be a journalist, uh -huh. um, I wanted, and, and also being involved in film production. Uh, I, I grew up in the country, and uh, I grew up in a household that had intermittent television reception depending on what part the wind blew. So, so I, had a, I had an obsessive interest in that which I, I didn't have in the amount I wanted. Um, a bit like the person who's in the cheap hotel in the 60s where the television service works for a while and then you've got to put another 20 cents in the top of it like the gas meter except you kept mislaying the 20 cents or, the, or, the, or your parents wouldn't give you another 20 cents <laughs> well, but so the you didn't know what happened blame, to Batman you couldn't blame it on the parents you just, uh, you, we, we, were, we, were, we were in a valley and, and we were between um, uh, two high powered um, power lines right. which, which um, did things to the television yes. reception so you went to Griffith because they promised you television reception. <laughs> well, and, and some production. Remember, this is the beginning of the video porter pack and the video access movement and stuff. Right. And, and, you know, I was, I was in the, you know, in the country you, you had a capacity to read these publications, which are alternative publications. And, um, you know, it, and, and that's part of how I perceived myself as an alternative sort of person. You, 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 you would... You would laugh about knowingly. No, um, not at all. And um, I always used to say, Tommy, the, there were many, many men that I met who were completely sane and rational at work and completely insane at home. They seemed like normal, decent, hardworking, mm -hmm. energetic, rational folk in the occupational mm -hmm. environment. And the minute they were with their wives and children, turned into monsters. You, on the other hand, was not a monster at work, were quite often insane. But went home with Rita Shanahan and your children. A model of rationality and decency. So well, I've always seen you as an alternative person. <laughs> right, because okay, you okay. flipped, yeah. as Ian Hunter, our friend, would say, you flipped them like a burger. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I was interested in the, you know, I came to Griffith and then I experienced people like Ian Hunter and David Saunders and Albert Moran and Sylvia Lawson, um, the latter two very important figures in um, Australian film and television studies. Uh, and Mick Coonahan and you know some of the people that you know very well and some of whom you've interviewed for this. Um, and uh, and I, I got... Well, actually, I tried to get into the film school. Did you? I, I, I produced a kind of a portfolio. By the way, this is awful. The, some of the, the people that Thomas mentioned are in that first intake. People like Gillian Armstrong and Philip Noyce. Yeah, uh, and so well, you could never have put Tom O'Regan alongside yeah, those, no, could I'm you? I'm not saying that, but there were only about five people who got in. This was after my. No, this was this was at the end of my Griffith training, oh. so they'd gone by then, okay. and there were you know there were other people, and look, look, I I'd kind of, you know, I, I sort of was attracted to the idea of of, um, you know, in fact, my honours thesis was actually a piece of production, um, and uh, and I was this notion of producing countertext, and very influenced by the later Goddard's work, and and uh, and you know, kind of. Being very earnest, looking at Straubwio's kind of interminable tracking through the streets of Rome or something, or Paris, and um, and and it was it was that kind of uh, you know that was the kind of ethos or kind of thinking. But it was avant-garde and activist, but not so much populist. No, 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 and, and uh, that's true. And uh, and it was. It was. I, I did forms of communication, uh, which wasn't quite a communication degree. You know, in fact, we did a semester in dram dramatic codes. It was initially by dramatic codes, narrative codes, you know, this kind of stuff. So it was a really alternative curriculum, yeah. um, which which leads leads you to the formation, my own formation as subject, who's who's kind of, you know, not quite a good enough historian. <laughs> you know, you always feel there's something missing. But at the same time, I, I kind of clearly got something out of that, which was a certain kind of way of inhabiting a, a multidisciplinary, as it turns out, a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary space, where where you you kind of 
you, you, you'd had an undergraduate degree where you were you might have been reading Gadamer and at the same time watching Goddard and at the same time kind of uh, um, reading about uh, Hollywood musicals. So there was some populism mixed in with the activism and the avant-garde. Yeah. And, and I should say the people Tom's mentioning are all people who came out of cultural Marxism and then veered a fair distance in part through the influence of Foucault, right? Mm, yeah. um, uh, certainly in the case of two or three of the folk he referred to. And uh, it seems to me Foucault was a very important influence on you Certainly as you went on to your PhD oh, and your was, notion of hey, writing Australian look, look, I, film I, historiography. I learned about Jorge Luis Borges from mm -hmm. Foucault. Right. Anyway, um, one of the um, books that I encountered that to me was just absolutely strange and unlike anything that I'd ever read was The Order of Things. Mm -hmm. and, um, and to some extent that Foucaultian uh, line uh, all multiple lines was, was something that just shaped a lot of practice, a lot of you know. My, my teachers like Ian Hunter and uh, and and David Saunders were 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 initially quite antagonistic, not quite antagonistic. That's not the right word, but were reserved about Foucault. Um, and yet, at later, you could say that they were very Foucaultian in their orientation. And and I was, I guess, part of that scene in which that was happening. Being negotiated. Being negotiated. And so, you know, I was very uh, taken with um, Jacques Donzelot's Policing of Families. And at one stage, I, one version of my PhD thesis was going to be a Donzelotian analysis of the then uh, raids on abortion clinics in, in, in Brisbane. Like that was one of, the, one of the kind of things that I was... Yeah. I've still got the notes on that somewhere. Wow. I think they're getting all eaten up and... And kind of, but, but it, it was a sense that this was a way of unlocking a whole series of different kind of bits. And so my focus eventually on going back to film kind of happened because I, I just had a PhD thesis that was too full of these bits. Now tell me, but tell me about the, how this enabled you to unlock things. I'd like to hear you talk more about that. What was it about Foucault and Donzelot, who I guess was his student, uh, that enabled you to unlock things? Well, you, you could take something that was like a... A, a very familiar thing, such as a prison or school or a kind of like ideas of madness. Mm -hmm. um, in Foucault's case, the whole kind of issue of family and welfare in Donzelot's case. And, and you, you, you kind of saw that um, institution, as it might have been called, as a, as a as a certain kind of intellectual project of a certain kind. Um, and you also saw it as em embodying certain kinds of, um, what do you want to call it, discourses or practices and routines and so on. And, and I mean, that was the way for me into a kind of a thing. That, well, well, well what, you're, what you're kind of seeing is only one aspect of this. And to look at the multiple lines of intersection and the multiplicities and, and what is being enabled out of these constraints. I mean it's a view that constraints are enabling in some ways and that tended, to, that for me was a very liberating idea that, yeah. that you, we don't, you know, that, that various kinds of constraints that are that are offered by certain things, whether it's the policy environment of the constraints about what you can do in a policy environment, mm. you know, leads to great creativity in trying to work with that and do things with that and so on. And it, it made me aware of that process as well as suspicious of that process. Yeah. And and so so I've never, you know, it's my encounter with Foucault has probably left me in this constitutional space as a person, which is as as a researcher. Researcher, where, where, where I, I, I've become quite good, I think, in some ways, of teasing out those multiplicities, while at the same time, kind of not necessarily being able to you know, have a have an, a, a strong and overarching or normative narrative on what is what is happening. I mean, it, it, it's uh, so you don't have either the normative narrative of creative industries or of, say, a functionalist Marxism. No, I'm, I'm lacking a normativity, but, but I'm very interested in normativity. I'm interested in normative moments. That's why I got interested in policy, I think, and that's why I got interested in forms of theory, I think, because it was intrinsically normative. Much theory is intrinsically normative. It's, yeah. And I was interested in the kind of, the ways in which this stuff was productive in its constraints. 
Um, One often thinks of censorship in Hollywood mm. as being a great example of the productivity of policing and restricting mm. because of the interesting ways in which the incapacity to show sex, drugs mm. and rock and roll was managed. Mm. Yeah? would be a classic example. In those days, under the production code, a voluntary, mm. but in fact, trying to deal with a Catholic legion of women voters as a lobby group, mm. set of restrictions policed by mm. the industry itself, never imposed by the government, but introduced in order to forestall mm. that. I mean, would be an interesting way. The way in which the cigarette, mm. after there's been a cut, is a way of showing that a couple have had illicit sex, yeah. rather than showing the act physics itself, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, that would be yeah. a classic example of what we're talking about textually, yeah. but it can happen at an industrial or policy and it happened, level. And it happens in many more ways. I mean, I, I once had the privilege of supervising a PhD on Hong Kong cinema, in fact, Ying Chi, uh, Ying Chi's thesis, which later became a book on Hong Kong cinema. And uh, and one of the things that she was telling me about the... Um, about censorship was that the, the Brits were not so much interested in what was on the screen, but but how the People's Republic appeared in it, and uh, and so they were very heavy on anything that was critical of the PRC, which is one of the reasons that sort of that generation of Hong Kong cinema always had bad white fellas, you know, bad bad non-Chinese, <laughs> and of course while you've got a setting in the past as well. So, it was, yeah, so, so I mean, I, I recently got feedback from one of my teaching assistants that the students are afraid of me because I have the same accent as villains in action <laughs> adventure films. <laughs> well, that's, that's what Australian <laughs> accent's good for, surely. <laughs> it's a very villainous accent, really. <laughs> very, no, but uh, the association with villainy that is not going to offend those who yeah. are stereotyped as such. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and so, so look, I, I mean, I think. Uh, I, we're up to, you know, you're talking about kind of, what I'm thinking of as constraints is more, so it's more than just kind of textual interdictions. Mm. It's, it's the constraint of the, of the frame of the, you know, the way you're framing something or the way things are framed or, or the path dependencies of, so the, of how the notion of are, discourse is that which yeah. can and cannot be said and yeah, that's right. where and by whom and so on. Yeah, and, right. and, and why, you know, once you have things taking off in a certain direction, how it seems like you're, you're caught in that framework of repetition um, along a certain pathway right. um, and, uh, and, and that's, you know, where I... How that happens. Now, we've got about ten minutes okay. left. During that time, because like you, I'm hoping to get a little more of Yeah, the you lunch. want something more to eat, yes. I do. So what I'm wondering is whether you might turn on to one other topic yep. and then very quickly mm. tell us what you're researching now. Mm. Yeah. The other topic I'd love to hear you give us a blast on for a couple of just minutes. has us walking around wrangling people to start. Right, okay. Sure. Otherwise we won't be able to find our way back. Right? Yeah. Do you reckon we can find our way back? Probably not. So we've <laughs> got to be, all right, we've got to be wrangled. That's okay, we can keep doing this. So I wondered if you could tell us about you and Bruno Latour. All oh, right. Well, well, actually, it's a, it's a kind of a and a fellow Catholic. <laughs> um, Bruno, Bruno Latour's work is was in was important to me. I think at a certain time, and probably still is, because you it, in the yeah, because it, it kind of enabled me to. Oh, whoops. Yes, it enabled me to work with and re resolve. described as everything's discourse, and they, as, if, as if, you know, they've turned a language as nothing material and so on. Yeah. But at the same time, that coalition of discourse and material materiality um, as being a... So, so you know, that, that's one of the things that I really was quite excited about that. And But it also enabled me to um, unlock um, a whole range of things that I got interested in, that I always was interested in. Mm -hmm. like one was all this research, right? And the ratings, right? And um, and that was another one of the projects that I so whereas just worked on. So, Latour is looking at bombs or microbes or pumps. Mm. You're looking at television ratings. Yes, and, and or, or yeah, yeah. And but but that also led me to people like Donald McKenzie. It also led me to the wonderful books like his, of his, like an engine, not a camera, which is on the evolution of financial markets, which which to me seemed to be speaking to me about some fundamental characteristics of the ratings as a as a form of knowledge that's invested in in various ways that's 
that's organised, that's absolutely future-oriented, although it's an historical map of what immediately happened. And so it's, it, is, it is actually an engine, not a camera. So <laughs> where a camera represents things as it is, an engine is something more than that. Sure. So this so, is about the institutionalisation of ideas. Yeah, and their embodiment in practices, as, as procedures, material, technologies. Material, material practices. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's where the, the two things come together. Right. And, I, and I think it's important to recognise how much um, Latour wrote to Foucault. In many of those formulations. So, so that's how I got involved with that. So, <laughs> what, do you, what do you want us to do here? Um, avoid Wait for these people else, go. Yep. Not get lost. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Turn to TV ratings. How have you got into that? Because that's been a major concern for us for some years now. Yes, I look, I, I, it, it's like how I got into all of those other things. What if we took this object, that we, you know, which is quite a normal institutional thing, and, and just say, well, well, how does it work? Like, as, you know, because we, we, we haven't, we've had studies of the reptiles, we've had primers on how to do them, how to make sense of them. But we, we, we haven't had a lot on how, how it works as forms of knowledge and forms of practice. Yeah, there's certainly, you know, being an quite wonderful the audience, and, and that notion of institutional uses of research analysis. But, but that is that doesn't get to the the, the, the things who yeah but also also the knowledge formations and the ways in which knowledge is there is a, talking about that but that's not telling you how auditing is done you know the, and the importance of the auditing function uh, do you want me to carry that no we're doing, no, we're doing yeah, fine right. that, that's that's also not telling you about the um, the, the, the important figure of the ratings intellectual. Yes. You know, and how they work. And how I can tell you a story about the ratings intellectual. Would you like a story about the ratings yeah, intellectual? Yeah. I was teaching a class at a, an Australian university where the ratings manager from one mm. of the major commercial networks came in to give a lecture on mm. rating and a share. An hour before arrival, he was fired. Mm. He was very, very sad when he came yeah, to see he would continue. Mm. I worked out why he was fired. He did not know the difference between a rest and a share. <laughs> well, there's very interesting kind of way. The, 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 you know, we, we just started asking people who worked in ratings companies. We, we started kind of doing almost a, not an ethnography, but a kind of a, an oral history. Of, um, of, you know, and it's quite interesting that we, that hadn't been done much before. You know, there'd been Peter Miller's work at North Northwestern, but he's a ratings auditor. Um, you know, he's he's actually formally involved in that, and and so we, um, we, you know, it's sort of like doing a studio research. <laughs> There's this thing called the studio. Okay, there's these companies. You know, what are they? How are they? How are they working? What are some of the complex trade-offs involved? How do they deal with a clientele that might not know that difference? Right. That. that and that's an ongoing problem for them. Sure. It's an ongoing problem in the provision. It's an ongoing problem in what they, how people use it, the way they, and the, the, the people who who work with that have a very statistical understanding of things. Which is not the same as the um, as how people use statistics to to suppose that you know statistics is a science of uncertainty, right? But the people, the users who, who will will regard the kind of um, you know the a rating as uh, statistical certainty. Well, well, not a statistical certainty, but but ignore the fact that you know you've gone to a decimal point, and the the tolerance level is about you know one or two points, not a decimal point. No, that kind of thing, which is quite important. And it was like thinking about those forms of knowledge. And Isn't it partly about taking entities that produce knowledge that 
is not in fact purely descriptive, yeah. but is equally, if not more so, purposive. Yes. In other words, it's not that it's, it's a normative thing, an yeah. adequate account of things. Yes. Yeah. It's that that account is hegemonic mm. and manages to make things happen. Yeah. In the same way as neoclassical economics has a series of laughable mm. assumptions about the nature and conduct mm. of persons and markets, mm. which are based around the notion of the person, mm. from which derive real and efficacious events that are very material and real, actual. real models about buying and selling in the share market. Yes, that affect yeah. what happens in the share market. Yeah. Yeah. However inaccurate they may be, yes, as accounts. Yeah. So they're very good at making things happen. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's like one stream yeah, of what the dual work the, the other stream comes out of the, that whole turn, recent turn to places. And that's obviously a continuation of our interest in the studio work and, you know, the, to, to make sense of studios in places, you've had to understand regional aspects of a regional cultural policy, a regional ways things are happening. So, so this, this is an, the, the new work I've been doing has been focused on on basically the organisation of audiovisual production in cities, you know, and how it changes over time. Um, it's it seemed to me that that was a way to understand what digitisation was meaning, um, how it had been expressed by. You know, markers of change of that kind, and uh, so so that was another one. We wait for these guys. Um, yeah, and, uh, and and so the, so so that's that's part of that broader geographical turn um, that we see in our in our different disciplines. And I, you know, I initially started thinking about it in terms of you know, world cities and those kinds of things. But, but of, of late, I'm as much interested in the, uh, this, what are called the second and third round cities. Mm -hmm. and, and it comes out of... What are second and third round world cities? cities that either not... In, in the, if, if, the, if the first round is going to be... If the world city is going in the Australian context is going to be Sydney, then the second round will become the Melbourne and maybe the third will be Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth and Canberra and so on. Um, and and that that rhetoric has, has has reflexively entered into both federal and state policy making. So you know you've had a notion that in order for Australia to have one world city, its world cityness needs to be continually enhanced. So all sorts of things will be put there, like the Fox Studios, with, with some certain kinds of federal assistance being located there, whereas none of the other studios had that federal assistance. They had state-based assistance. So, so, you, so, in a way, part of it is driven by a, a kind of an ongoing concern about what kind of opportunities are there in a, in a globalising and nationally coordinated spaces that are emerging in our audiovisual industries for local participation. Mm -hmm. And uh, here comes our elevator. So, my experience anyway of trying to think about <clears throat> things such as industrial renovation yeah. of cities is that almost inevitably this leads to all kinds of. We're going down. That's very We might bad. go down before we go up, yeah. So it said, <laughs> sort of a Schumpeterian, Schumpeterian account of elevator motion. <laughs> so, um, my experience of these things is that they generally involve <laughs> massive inequalities, inequities, and injustices when there are decisions about certain cities or certain parts of cities hmm. being renovated or announced as wonderful. <sighs> in What's that like in Australia? It's, it's, a, it's a mixed scenario. I mean, there, there, are, there, there are a lot of, a lot of places uh, where, these, where some of these rearrangements of cultural facilities have occurred have been brownfield sites. Have been uh, brownfield sites. What does that mean? Basically, former industrial sites that have, that have become very um, uh, run down. Oh, like uh, rust belts. Rust belts belt kind of thing. You know, where the, where, the, um, where, where the logistics and so on moves to a Middle middle layer yeah. um, and various kinds of manufacturing, if they continue to exist, move to a middle layer right. away from the um, away from the city centre. So, so it has probably not been as um, well unbenign 
you know, yeah. it's been more benign than in some other locations. Right. It's seen that it's a hostile displacement. Do you have a... Oh. But, um, yeah, so. Well, Tom, thank you very much. It's been fantastic talking to you. Um, I want to extract a promise from you, which I do from all preferred guests, as they like to say in hotel chains, which is that you will come back to the pod and grace us with your presence very, very soon, particularly when your ratings book comes out. It's out. It's out. Oh, heavens. All right. Well, before you go, do a quick plug for the book. What's it called? Who wrote it? Who published it? It's called The, the, Rating, the Business of Ratings. It's published by Bloomsbury, and it's co-written with um, Mark Belmays and Ben Goldsmith. Well, Tom, thank you so much. Always lovely to chat.